We're going to be in Hosea chapter 10, page 756 in the Bibles in front of you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a gift that you would speak to us and that in your kindness, in your wisdom, in your generosity, that you would have your word recorded in this book. So we come to this text today, may we not come to it like any other book. No matter how great it is, no matter how influential, it is nothing compared to this. This is not merely ink on a page, but your very word, your living and active word. Because of that, God, we ask you to give us hunger that we would realize how famished our souls are apart from hearing of your word. This text is going to not just tap on, but truly target what can often be a major idol in our lives and in our culture. And so as much as every week when we come to your word, we need humility. Help us to bend our knees quickly. Help us not buck against the kindness of your call-outs. But what we'll need more than anything is to not just be confronted, but to be directed. And so would there not be a single person in this room through singing, through conversations, through prayers, through communion, through this text, through this sermon, God, would there not be a single person that would leave this place less impressed with Christ, God? Would you raise and highlight our need for him? Let us come and seek him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I was surprised to find this out, but about half of Americans play the state lottery. Um, The average person spends $1,038 per year on the lottery. Even though, we'll try to get the the feedback fixed, it'll fix in a minute, but even though the odds of winning the lottery are significantly less than getting eaten by a grizzly bear in a state park. (laughs) Or struck by lightning. Or crushed by a meteorite. You, it, you're more likely to get crushed by a meteorite. Yeah, I don't know if that's funny. It's kind of funny. But crushed by, it's not funny. You're crushed by a meteorite than winning the lottery. I found this one really interesting. I'm left-handed. You have a higher likelihood of dying as a left-handed person because you used a right-handed tool in America than winning the lottery. 45 people a year. 45. I know. You take it easy on us lefties. You're far more likely to win an Oscar, to win a gold medal in the Olympics, or become president of the United States, even though the odds are stacked against us to win the big one, at least. Why do we keep playing? Well, money makes everything better, right? Sort of. Kind of depends what spot you find yourself in. But you don't have to do much digging to see that winning the lottery is life-changing, but not always for the better. Winners have reported an increase in depression and anxiety, guilt, anger. There's a loss of identity. You have this endless line of people asking for handouts. You have people reportedly being um, poisoned. There was one couple whose this guy's brother hired a hitman to kill him so he could get his inheritance. It's not all bad. A cash windfall can lead to really positive things. There's lots of stories, wonderful stories of people that are um, in poverty, being released out of something that's so difficult. 
Other people stewarding their, their, their winnings to, to build foundations and, and, uh, and, and, and develop schools, contribute to charities. Billions given to improve cities. So what makes the difference between winning money, wealth, prosperity being a curse or a blessing? We're going to look at a text today that will help us figure that out. We're going to look at the challenge of prosperity, the cost of getting it wrong, and the chance to get it right. The challenge of prosperity, cost of getting it right, and the chance to get it right. We're able to study God's word together. Isaiah chapter 11. God's hopeful Israel is a luxurious vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths and make covenants so judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Bethaven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoice over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as a tribute to the great. Great king, Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idols. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow upon their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. For the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and the nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thrush, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your follow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your force shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arba on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Feel free to grab a seat. Now, the original title for this, uh, this sermon is, was The Curse of Prosperity, and I modified it because I think that's, a, that's an overly negative way of thinking about money and possession, something that we handle all of the time. It's not a curse. That's not how the Bible talks about money and possessions. It's not a curse, but it is a challenge. And the sermon may feel like it's a beautiful day. Um, Half the church decided to stay outside and not come inside, <laughs> and you signed up to come to the sermon on money and possessions. It, it, I hope it is not a super frustrating sermon. It's always 
a good text when God opens his mouth to us. Um, but money and possessions are powerful. And they have a way of shaping us in, in, in ways and in, in, in doing things to us in really powerful ways. And so knowing how to handle it is one of God's great kindnesses to us. Um, I'll give you two of my favorite books on the topic of money and possessions. One of them is The Things of the Earth by a guy named Joe Rigney. And the, the subtitle is something like Enjoying God by Enjoying His Gifts. And so it's, it really is like a no-guilt book on enjoying God's good gifts. This last Thursday, I was thinking about this as a church. We met down at Trackside. The, the weather was nice. Um, it, it, was, it was warm. It wasn't crazy windy. There's good food trucks around, different beverages, depending on what you want. And, you know, a ton of people from the church getting together, watching them eat good food and enjoy each other. I mean, that's, that's a great example of the, the resources God gives in order that you can enjoy. One of my favorite books. If you another book, though, that has been really impactful on me, Craig Blomberg, his book, Neither Poverty Nor Riches. It's what's called the biblical theology of money and possessions. It's where you go through the whole Bible and you try to create, like, what's this narrative arc through the entire Bible as we think about any specific topic? Well, he tackled the one of, of money and possession. And one of the most helpful things in his book, in my opinion, is he comes up with five summary statements for the entire Bible when it talks about money and possessions, and then he gives you kind of five strategies on what do you do with these five statements, and three of them are really pertinent for what we're looking at in Hosea chapter 10. Put this slide up on the screen. I know, guys, sorry. Thank you. It's really good. It's worth waiting for, I promise. It's the one by Craig Blomberg. There should be three points to it. Ah, we won't even be able to read it anyway. All right. <laughs> That's all right. I'll read it to you. It's so good. Three, three points from his five. Material possessions are a good gift from God meant for people to enjoy. It's one of his big points, okay? So as we talk about how money can corrupt us and it can become a major challenge to derail us, I want you to hear, keep that point loud. Money and possessions are a good gift from God meant for people to enjoy. Material possessions are simultaneously one of the primary means of turning human hearts away from God. It's all through the Bible. And it's often in our lives. God gives good gifts, and sometimes those good gifts have a tendency to turn our hearts away from him. And then the last of his five points is this. Above all, the Bible's teaching about material possessions is inextricably intertwined with more spiritual matters. As Jesus said, where your heart is, or where your treasure is, there your heart is also. I'm going to read you a long text from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 6 and following. It says God's word to his people as they are about to go into the promised land, this reminder to this generation to, like, as you go in, what are the things you need to be aware of? This is God's wonderful word. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olives and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. 
and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given. God is lavishing on them just so many good, good things. Verse 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Listen to this. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through a great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Verse 19, last verse. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. That's the backstory of Hosea 10. Israel is a luxurious vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. And, and we could go to previous chapters, altars for sinning. The more the, he improved his pillars. It's not just about making a nicer home. These are ways of worshiping false gods. And as the text ends, they were punished. Israel sadly didn't listen. They got it wrong. But we can learn from their mistake. We, we need to learn from their mistake. This is one of the primary things we touch all the time is money and possessions. And if it's a good thing from God for us to enjoy, but simultaneously one of the primary things that can turn our hearts away, spending time thinking about how do we steward it well and wisely makes a lot of sense. You know, the church's primary time and a Christian's primary time of apostasy or of a hollowed out faith are in times of affluence not in times of poverty. Let's look at the cost of getting it wrong. Uh, Bloomberg said, above all, the Bible's teachings about material possessions is inextricably intertwined with more spiritual matters. It's not just money. It, it, in possessions, it impacts us at a soul level. We see this in verse 2. Their heart is false. They're kind of pseudo-worshiping God, but their heart is false. The, the word there actually, for, it means smooth, or slippery. Craig Blomberg, or not Craig Blomberg, um, uh, another, another uh, James Boyce, he translates it as oily. Their heart's oily. They're slick-hearted. They're kind of double-tongued. They have the appearance of being about God. Israel was pervasively religious the more altars he built, but there was not a sincere, pure devotion. They were taking what God was providing and squandering it on things that God would offend God. And here, let me give you this key. They weren't even aware. We call this a spiritual blindness. That one of the things that money and possessions can do is it can make us blind, actually, to our own sin. You know, what does this look like? Well, it can look like Laodicea, this church in the book of Revelation, Revelation 3, 15 through 17. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, 
I will spit you out of my mouth and listen to this. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The church in Laodicea was a nice, upper, middle-class sort of church. It was dangerous. So what does this look like? Well, it could look like us. Now, it could's a really important word. It could. It doesn't have to. It's not the curse of prosperity. It's the challenge. I've been a pastor for um, almost 19 years. And one of the really, truly deepest honors I get is when people are willing to sit down, want to sit down, reach out to sit down, and talk about an area of struggle, an area of sin in their lives. And over the last 19 years, I've, I've probably I've heard it all. And, um, and I want you to know, whatever it is that you're struggling with, you are not alone. You know, we're good at inventing evil in this room. Amen? So I don't want you to feel like you're alone, but in those 19 years, all the intimate, personal, shame-filled, guilt-stricken things that people have shared, I can only think of one time in 19 years where someone says, I struggle with greed. One time when someone said, I struggle with greed. Compare that to some of these stats that Blongberg begins his book with. The number of people, he begins with the number of people in the world living below the poverty line. He moves on to the number of children that die from easily preventable diseases because of poverty, on and on and on. And then he gets into this. He did this survey. This book was written like 20 plus years ago. So he's pulling from some stuff from the 80s and 90s. And he, he demonstrated that Americans spent annually twice as much on cut flowers as overseas missions. Twice as much on women's sheer hoisery. So it's definitely written 20 years ago. Um, one and a half times as much on video games. One and a half times as much on pinball machines. Slightly more on the lawn industry, about five times as much on pets, almost one and a half times on chewing gum, almost three times as much on swimming pools, approximately seven times as much on candy, 17 times as much on diets and diet-related products, 20 times as much on sporting activities, approximately 26 times as much on soft drinks, and a staggering 140 times as much on legalized gambling. and some others. Christians, on average, give about 2.5% of their income. During the Great Depression, it was 3.3. According to a 27 report by Barna, this, this one really got me. It said the primary attitude of Christians, not just people, but not just Americans, but American Christians around giving is the exact opposite of the Bibles. The, major, the overwhelming majority of American Christians see giving as a luxury. So what that means is they say, if I can take care of all the other stuff that I need to and I want to, and there's something left over, then I will give it in service to the Lord. Now, only take on guilt if you need to. And we will for sure show us where, we will remind each other where we go with this guilt as this sermon comes. Only take on guilt if you need to. And I know stats like this and stories like they can get wonky Flowers are good. Buy my wife flowers almost every single week. Nice lawns are good. Vacations are good. That's why I referenced this book by Joe Rigney. It's a wonderful book of how to enjoy the things of this earth without guilt, without shame. 
I just want you to hold the tension of these points, these two points that God gives good gifts. And sometimes, often, simultaneously, quickly, sometimes without warning or knowledge, those good gifts have a way of turning our hearts from God. Israel at this time, right before they went into exile and they experienced the punishment and judgment of God, they were coming out of one of the most prosperous and peace-filled times as a nation. We can have spiritual blindness and just not even know it. One of the consequences of getting this wrong, you get consumed by money and possessions and not even know it. I'll give you another one. We don't just have spiritual blindness, but we can end up with a divided heart. This prosperity doesn't just blind us, but it can divide us. That's this language of your your heart is false. You're you're saying you're worshiping God, but but you're not really worshiping God. It's this kind of, uh, I can think of, no more pertinent words on this than our Savior's words in Matthew 6, 24. I love the nuance of the Bible. I, know, I love the grayness of the Bible. I love the places in the Bible where there's wisdom for a broken word like Proverbs, and we have these principles and how we do this. I also love the places in the Bible that are just clear, binary. Christ says it like this, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God in money. You can't do it. There'll always be this internal toil and friction. I don't remember where I read this line, but it stuck with me for years. There's this sad reality for far too many Christians. They have too much of the world to be satisfied with Jesus and just enough Jesus to be content with the world. Always grinding. Blindness, divided heart, give you another. There's a lot of consequences of getting this wrong. I'll just give you a few from this text. It's really sad, a shrunken God. Look at verse 3. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? Now that language, we have no king, um, it, it, the, the, the grammar on it actually could be that it's a, a king of Israel, or it could, God is not our king. Nevertheless, they, th- there's this, this line that I want to zoom in on. They've drifted terribly from God and their dependence, for we have no fear of the Lord. Just finished a fantastic book by Michael Horton called Recovering Our Sanity. On page 32, he asks the reader, he says this, he says, just pause and think of the top 10 sins in the world today. So just pause and think of the top 10 sins in the world today. And you can't put greed one because that feels like cheating in a sermon like this. There's greed, right? What are the top 10? And then he goes on, he says, if you're anything like me, you, you likely listed symptoms, not the root illness. So what's the root cause? Well, Hort would actually say this, we lack fear of the Lord. He's become insignificant. I'll quote it, quoting Horton in his book, Recovering Our Sanity. He says, active rebellion against God is not the root, but the fruit of failing to take God seriously. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Psalm 36.1. Do you know that it's possible to live an outwardly pious life, thanking God that you're not like the godless secular humanist, without any genuine fear of God in you. 
The worst vulgarity is not what we hear on the streets or see when we stream movies online. It's the vulgarity of the church trivializing or misrepresenting God. There was no fear of the Lord. We don't need God. Later on, they trusted in their own ways. Why? Well, I would suggest that part of it is they had money. If we swim in a world, in a culture, in a worldview where money equals power, then if I have money, if I have resources, I don't really need God for my daily bread. I don't really need his commands to instruct me. In, in this text, what's sad is they were using money, they were using power, they were using influence to try to secure for themselves national security. That's verses Five and six, the inhabitants of Samaria shall tremble for the calf of Beth Avon if the people mourn for it as they do their idolatrous priests. Those who rejoice over and over its glory for it is departed from them. the thing itself shall be carried to Assyria, a tribute to the great king. I'm saying they're going to take this statue up to the king to try to make some sort of political brokerage, to try to create national security through an alliance. And what's so sad is their desire to use money, which is often a symbol of power, is that it twisted them. There was no Beth-Avon that actually Beth-Avon, the name that, where that's supposed to take place is in a place called Bethel, the house of God. But here it's been renamed Beth-Avon, which means the house of wickedness. This place where they worshiped God, they're, they're, they're now worshiping at the, 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 the mantle of mammon. Sad, it just doesn't work. Samaria, the king shall perish, verse 7, like a twig on the face of the water. Samaria is another way of saying Israel, the king, is going to die. It's not going to work. It had nothing, to, can't, can't do anything to prevent it. doesn't matter how much money you have, you can't prevent it. It's like a twig on the water. It's just going to go wherever the currents go. Verse 8, the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorns and thistles shall grow up. The land's going to get run over. The, the, the ground is going to take it over again because you're going to get carried off into exile. Blindness, divided, shrunken God, and a debt you can't pay. And a debt you can't pay. I had a buddy, wonderful, really just good friend, um, who uh, decided he ended up making some really poor decisions financially. Started living beyond his means, and so what he would do is he began to, uh, he would amass a little bit of debt on a credit card, and then he would take that debt, and he would get a new credit card, a new offer would come, and he could transfer funds over to that credit card with a little bit larger of a balance. And then he would take that and he'd get a, another credit card and transfer that over. As, it, as the bill came due, he kept doing this. He kept kind of like, I don't know, parlaying this into new credit cards and more debt eventually ended up in six-figure debt that he couldn't finally get out of. Ended up going bankrupt, really lost everything he had. A text like this, what it says is the check will come due. That's how it ends. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Prosperity is not a curse, but it is a very real challenge. A very real challenge. For Israel at this time, it drove them away from God. But here's the good news, is it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. There is always the chance to get it right. And that's whether prosperity has driven us away or any other thing. There's always a chance to get it right. And we, we see that in the middle of this text. I love verse 11. It's this beautiful 
half a verse um, encouragement that they, that they got it right at one point in their life. Ephraim was like a trained calf that loved to thrash. It was saying, you, my people, they were, they were easily directed by me. They, they went where I told them to go. They did what I asked them to do, and they loved to threat. They loved, there was a time in Israel's life when they loved to obey God. I thank God for that. That is deeply encouraging that we're not always just pervasively rebellious. There's, there's sincerity of heart that we can love the Lord, that we can follow him. And then it goes on, it says, I spared her fair neck, what, what, what God is saying there is that I wasn't harsh with her in her obedience. I didn't overwork her. I protected her and fed her and cared for her. But then the last part of verse 11, but now Ephraim will have to go to the yoke and Judah must plow his hand, but they started to rebel and now discipline has to come. But then right after that, verse 12, it is a stunning glimmer of hope in an otherwise dark chapter that highlights the the sin of God's people, really the futility of trusting ourselves, the grave consequences of losing the fear of the Lord. But all of that was given in order that God's people might respond to the call and the invitation that verse 12 is given. And I hope that's what you hear now. If you're in a place of saying like, man, I feel the conviction of the Lord upon my life for how I have allowed some of his good gifts to actually turn me further from him or turn me more inward. and I, I see the compromise. The whole point of it is not to shame you, but get, to, to get you to respond the way verse, to get me to respond the way verse 12 speaks. Sow for yourself righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your follow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. There's this chance to get it right, and where it begins is it's an invitation to return. It's an invitation to come back wherever you are, to just come back and to seek the Lord. It's always the time. Now, there's a big challenge with this, and we see it in this, this phrase, this phrase, fallow ground. It means ground that hasn't been worked, ground that has been pretty much untouched, it's been unplowed, it's been unwatered, it comes rock hard. Thing about this in my neighborhood, I moved into my neighborhood like eight years ago as a, a new little subdevelopment, and um, and there's I think 12 houses in my little cul-de-sac, and then 11 on on the next, and and it was amazing. You know, I, we moved in in August. They're still building it, so I guess it was by the next summer when most of the houses were done. And you know, they're they're new houses and new paint and kind of new concrete, new everything, and, and new trees they planted, and then new sod, new yards. You know, it's beautiful green, just just. Glorious. It's just glorious. And what was amazing to me is to watch the majority of my neighbors not set a sprinkler. All summer long, that first summer, just not have a sprinkler. So they move into their house. Their yards are super green, super lush, super beautiful, but they didn't water them. So the grass had no opportunity to let its roots go down at all, to establish the lawn. And so what happened for at least half of my neighbors is all their yards basically died. By the end of summer, all it was, was was just kind of brown and hard, and the only things that would grow would be weeds that would then throw weeds on my yard, which would give me an opportunity to forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. And um, it was funny, is, so after a few, it was, I would I was always, always laugh when people were like, why is your trees not died in your front yard? Because I water. Um, and, uh, but it was so funny, because like, after a few years, they got to get frustrated, you know, and they would get frustrated, like our ground, it just looks so terrible. 
And so I, one of my neighbors in particular, he went out there, and, oh my goodness, for like four weekends in a row. He is out there with this rock hard ground, trying to like get it to open up so he can plant seeds, pulling out just all the, the, the weeds, getting all the dead grass, you know, threshing it and getting all the pieces out of it, trying to, he's bringing in soil and he's like tilling it together. He's literally rototilling his two-year-old lawn because it's already gone so dead and it's so hard and you can't break into it. He's spending weekend after weekend after weekend of doing this and finally he gets all the dirt laid out. He pants all the new seed and he starts to water for like three weeks and then he stops again and it just dies. I watched him do this two or three times and he finally sold his house and moved somewhere else. I just thought about it like this, that that the fallow ground, how hard it is, um, it's really hard to work with. And depending on how long a particular sin has had a grip on you, how long it's been since you've been unaware of maybe the role the prosperity and money and possessions have, have gotten a hold of parts of your heart that were reserved for the Lord, you have a chance to return but it's hard. Change will be hard. Not impossible, but hard. Tim Chester in his commentary on Hosea says it like this, if sin has become a habit in your life, then change is rarely easy. There is often hard work involved in reforming habits. The hard soil of our instinctive responses and patterns of thinking needs to be broken up. Saying no to sin in these circumstances will often feel like a part of us dying. But here, here's hope. Over time, however, new habits of righteousness start to replace the hard soil in our hearts. Now, the sermon title is Two Really Good Things That Can Become Very Bad Things. What are those two things? Um, one, hopefully, is clear prosperity a really good thing that can become a very bad thing. But there's another one that I think is, is less obvious but even more important. And this one might be a bit more of a shock of something that's a really good thing that can become a very bad thing, and it's this, repentance. Repentance can be the most life-giving, the, the most culture-transforming, the most spiritual deepening. It can be like oxygen to your faith, done correctly. But stewarded poorly, it can feel like slavery. Came across a really helpful um, blog post built around this question. Where do you turn when you repent? The word repentance means to turn, to turn from, to turn towards. And in it, Blake Glosson, he's trying to draw attention to a very subtle but massive distinction when we think about repentance. And that's really what we have in this text. Come, it is time. Seek the Lord. Turn. Come back. When we ask this question, repentance, as we turn from and turn towards, we turn from sin. But where do we turn to? And if I asked you that question, here's a very common response for God's people. We, well, we turn from sin, or we turn from disobedience, and we turn towards righteousness, and we turn towards obedience. And that's true, but it's not fully true. And, and Blake 
Lawson in his, his blog just points this out in such a helpful way. He says that that actually is a very costly mistake. We aren't first and foremost turning from sin to our own efforts to stop sinning, but we are turning from sin towards Christ. Let me read from Blake, from his blog post. Believing repentance is primarily about turning to righteousness can perpetuate and deepen our commitment to legalism. If we think the chief end of repentance is new behavior, not communion with the person of Christ, then we're reinforcing anti-gospel hope in our own ability to do better next time. Consider the vastly different outcomes of these two versions of repentance. If our response after we sin is, God, I promise I will do better, Right, and that, Jose, like, that's what he's trying to get. He's trying to get the people to return. God is working on all of our hearts all the time, that we're always returning, that we might respond. But it's not that we would first and foremost say, God, I messed up. I promise I'll do better. God, I know I've broken so many things. I know I'll work really hard to fix them. We say, God, I promise to do better. Then our hope is in ourselves. This is a fast track to despair. But if our response after we sin is, God, I need you. Give me a fresh measure of Christ and all his benefits. Then our hope is in our perfectly faithful God. And that puts us on the path to joy, peace, growth, and holiness. I hope you hear the difference. I hope when you're confronted by your sin, whether it's prosperity, has taken your heart, or a million other things that we give our hearts to other than our Lord. I was talking to a dear friend this last week. She just felt so overwhelmed with her sin. She's like, I've got so much to fix. I have so much to improve. I have so much to pay back. I have so much. I'm just like, oh, God. And it's not that we don't want to stop saying. It's not that we're not seeking obedience. It's not that we're not longing to live more righteous lives, but where it comes is in union with Christ. God, I need you. Give me a fresh measure of Christ and all his benefits. This isn't, oh, I have so much to fix. This is, oh, I have broken so much and I need someone else to fix it and to fix me. Verse 15 of this text is stark. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly, utterly cut off. The king of Israel was cut off. The people did go into exile. That all happened. And all of us, we have, we have rung up debts that we can't pay. One of the things I think is amazing about this text, though, is that there'd be another king of Israel, the true king of Israel, who would be utterly cut off, but not for his own sin. He'd be cut off for the sins of people that have lost their fear of the Lord. He'd be cut off for the sins of people that have put possessions and prosperity in the place where God alone should, should reign and rule this true king that came to be cut off for our indifference and our flippancy and our passivity. He'd be cut off for those who said, I don't need the Lord. 
I can trust in my own ways. And the great hope is this one that came, Christ, our Savior Jesus, that, that because he was utterly cut off, it means we never will be. That's the story of the gospel. That Christ is the true Israel that came and honored the Lord with his entire life in the way that we were meant to and yet failed to do and then went to a cross where he was cursed in our place that we might receive his righteousness and his benefits and his blessing. Come and seek that one. Come and find in the forgiveness of Christ the the ability and courage to deal with the sin of your life, not because it's yours to fix, because the Lord is inviting. He says, come and yoke yourself to me. My yoke is easy. It's a light. I will teach you and guide you and break up your foul ground. I'll do it with you through the power of the Spirit. Glosson, again, he says, this is ironically, when we make sinning less our primary goal in repentance, we can achieve the opposite. We tend to overanalyze, get caught up in despair, and fall flat on our faces. But when we make fleeing to Christ our primary goal in repentance, we get caught up in his beauty and find ourselves bearing the fruit of sanctification. Prosperity is not a curse, it's a challenge. If you have done well with it, thank God. Keep going. If you haven't, thank God for his grace. And here's God's invitation to start returning. Come, it's time to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and the rest of us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, help us to long for the day where we will no longer be temptable, deceivable, or capable of worshiping any other God but you. We so look forward to an eternity of giving you the adoration, affection, attention, and allegiance of which you alone are worthy. No one redeems us like you. No one loves us like you. No one cares for us like you. No one understands us like you. There is no God but you. In Jesus, you've already given us a new heart and have placed your spirit inside us. In Jesus, you've already turned our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. In Jesus, you've already given us a heart to know and love you. In Jesus, you've already written your law upon us. Indeed, Father, you've already given those in Christ a perfectly forgiven heart, yet it is far from being a fully perfected heart. The battle for our heart's worship continues daily, relentlessly. This conflict will persist until the day Jesus returns to finish making all things new. Thus, the cautionary tale of this text is so helpful in reminding us of the challenge of prosperity into an ultimate thing. Help us when we don't think you are enough. Make it clear where we take the trust and worship you deserve and squander it elsewhere. We praise you for the assurance that in Christ we are already your beloved children. You cannot love us more than you already do and you will never love us less. We thank you for Christ who was utterly cut off for us, knowing that because of his obedience, his sacrifice, his resurrection, that one day our hearts will be fully devoted. Until that day, help us to seek you first and never stop. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.
the band comes forward, we're going to respond as we do every single week as a church. Um, by receiving communion together, there's four stations set up in this room, um, each with a single serve of communion, a little wafer representing the, the body of Christ given for us, and a little bit of juice representing the blood of Christ spilled for us. We put a text like this into practice. This is a wonderful place to do this to come. It is time to seek the Lord. Let this be an action of, of repenting, of returning, of walking from something and walking towards not something but truly someone. I would encourage you, whatever it is you need to lay before the Lord, whatever you need to confess, confess those things, lay those things before the Lord. But don't make a bunch of promises about how you're going to do better. Don't make a bunch of plans about how you're going to pay off your debt. Just come and say, I need a fresh measure of Christ and all his benefits. And go to this table rejoicing in the one that gave everything that you might be loved and forgiven. And let that fuel your responses as you go through this week until we get to gather again as his people. Go to the table as you feel led.